Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last week, before the passing of constitutional icon Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the NCC awarded her the 2020 Liberty Medal for her lifelong efforts to advance liberty and equality for all. Following the Liberty Medal ceremony, NCC President Jeffrey Rosen discussed the justice's legacy both before and after joining the Supreme Court bench with two of her former clerks, Kelsey Corcoran and Amanda Tyler. Here's Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center's 2020 Liberty Medal post-ceremony conversation. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, the president of the National Constitution Center, which is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. It's such an honor to welcome you to this conversation after an extraordinarily moving and inspiring Liberty Medal ceremony. I've just watched the video along with you and was so honored to be part of the incredible team that put together this tribute to Justice Ginsburg in words and music. It was an all-woman team of creative artists at NBC Comcast who volunteered their time because they wanted to honor the justice and they worked with uh, the justice's uh, daughter-in-law, Patrice Michaels, who assembled uh, the justice's favorite opera singers to offer those incredible songs and the amazing National Constitution Center team, all of my great colleagues. And I just feel so grateful to be able uh, to be part of this amazing team that offered this memorable Liberty Medal to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, This is an informal conversation with two of the justices, uh, former clerks and dear friends. We're here to celebrate Justice Ginsburg's constitutional achievements and to learn about what it was like to clerk for her and work with her as a person and to uh, celebrate together her remarkable career. Uh, It's now a great uh, pleasure to introduce our panel. Kelsey Brown Corcoran is a partner at Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe. She heads the firm Supreme Court practice. Uh, She uh, was a clerk for Justice Ginsburg, as well as for Judge David Tatel of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and she's presented arguments before the Supreme Court and many other courts. Uh, Amanda Tyler is the Shannon Cecile Turner Professor of Law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. She was previously my colleague on the George Washington University uh, Law School faculty and has been a visiting professor at Harvard Law School, NYU, and the University of Virginia. She's the author of Habeas Corpus in Wartime, From the Tower of London to Guantanamo Bay, as well as the author of a forthcoming book with Justice Ginsburg about her achievements in gender equality. Uh, both Kelsey and Amanda appear on our podcast this week. I had a wonderful conversation with them earlier this week, and I can't wait to pick it up and to hear what they thought about the Liberty Medal. Kelsey, Amanda, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, Kelsey, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, what did you think of the video and, and what, what uh, jumped out at you and, and how did you think it captured Justice Ginsburg? Well, what, what jumped out at me is how beautifully it captured her great loves 
Uh, her family uh, is, is represented. You have her granddaughter there speaking so poignantly about, about their relationship and giving us insight into the, the justice as a human being. And then her work, obviously one of her great loves and opera. Uh, and so the, the way that you brought all three of those together was just, I, I'm sure the justice uh, was delighted watching at home. I'm so glad that all of those jumped out at you. And we really conceived of it as a personal Metropolitan Opera Gala mm -hmm. for the Justice, uh, knowing how much she loves opera and the fact that we're all Zooming at home, the idea of assembling her favorite singers to sing her favorite songs was uh, just incredibly meaningful to be able to do that. Uh, Amanda, what did, what did you think of the video and what jumped out at you? I had the same reaction. I thought it was beautifully done. And I particularly appreciated how there was so much opera in there because that is one of her great loves. I'm sure she was very moved to have many of her favorite singers perform in her honor. And I think she um, undoubtedly really enjoyed it because of that. If you have ever had the privilege of going to the opera with Justice Ginsburg, she becomes an entirely different human being when she is at the opera. It, it really is something that brings her to life in a, and brings joy to her in a really palpable way. So I'm sure that she loved what you put together. It was really well done. Wonderful. As I said in the video, I, I, she, she and I bonded over opera. I, I told that story. It was 1991. I was a young law clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals for a different judge. And I never met her before and just found myself in the elevator with her. She was coming down from a jazzercise class. Remember, she was really uh, incredibly devoted uh, even then. And she's completely silent in the elevator. And I just couldn't think of anything else to say. So I just blurted out what operas have you seen recently, which was, of course, the, the right question to ask uh, just by serendipity. And we just began this lifelong uh, uh, friendship of uh, bonding over opera. And she's described music as taking her outside of herself. Of uh, She said, I can't think about the briefs that I'm thinking about or anything else. I just get completely lost in the music. And her, her granddaughter talked about, of course, her mind is always working. That amazing anecdote about sitting at the dinner table and just out of the blue, comparing abortion jurisprudence in the U.S. to, to that in Europe. But when she is the opera and listening to music in particular, she is completely at one with the music. So Kelsey, um, tell us what was it like to flirt with her? Give us a sense of what that experience was like. So I had, I mean, it's, it's the opportunity of a lifetime, of course. I was there at a particular moment. I started about a week after her descent in uh, Shelby County, the, the big voting rights case of 2013, uh, which was when uh, the, the meme first appeared on the internet, I think created by some NYU law students, you can't spell truth without Ruth. And it had the picture of the chalk crown on her head and soon the moniker Notorious RBG started to trend. Um, and then over the course of those next months uh, and years, she went from being you know, a very well-known and well-respected Supreme Court justice to an international celebrity of epic proportions. Uh, and so it was the everything that's surreal about a, a Supreme Court clerkship and the opportunity to, to spend that quality time with the justice and then, and, and then watching what was going on in, in popular culture. Uh, it didn't affect her work in the slightest. She was singularly focused on 
the cases and getting her decisions right. And, and it was uh, for me to, to be able to work that closely with her and see her commitment uh, to excellence and getting every detail right, her extraordinary memory. I mean, when, when you have clerks, that we had five of us who split up the docket and we were each responsible for a fifth of the cases. At any given time, she had five times as many cases in her head as we did, and yet she could remember every detail and pull out the statutory uh, case, remember what decision uh, from 10, 20 years earlier was relevant. Uh, so I, I was in awe. I was in awe the whole time. It was, it was an extraordinary experience. That's remarkable that you were there uh, during the 2013 term, as you said, and that was indeed the moment of her uh, her transmutation from a judicial celebrity into an international icon because of that notorious RBG meme. It was a, a remarkable transformation, and um, how amazing that you were there to see it. Amanda, you clerked uh, during the 99 to 2000 term. She was, of course, very well known, but not been at the pop culture uh, icon status. Uh, did that experience feel different as a result, and, 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 what, and how did you find it was like to clerk for her? I, I did clerk before she was the notorious RBG. I think there are those of us before and those after. Uh, but it, it was amazing. It was everything you would imagine it, it would be. To get to work for your idol is a very, very special privilege. And um, in, the, in the case at hand, that, that was what I got to do. Getting to work and learn from her, work with her and learn from her was just extraordinary. As Kelsey said, she is incredibly hardworking. She has meticulous attention to detail and very exacting standards for herself as well as for those who work for her. And in a way, she brought us along and she made her clerks really want to do extraordinary work. One, because it was going out under her name, but two, because we wanted to be able to, to learn to be as good as she was, or certainly to aspire to do that level of work. And I learned so much from her over the course of that year, watching her think through how cases affected the people on the ground, that how the rules and, and decisions the Supreme Court hands down affect real people was something that was always very close to her heart when she was deciding the cases in front of the court. And that left an enormous impression on me that we have to remember, even in our classrooms and in other spaces, when we're talking about Supreme Court decisions, that they're not rules issued in a vacuum. They have real impact on the ground to the everyday lives of Americans. Those are such crucial lessons that you just highlighted. Uh, first, that notion of aspiring to be our best selves, to, to be as good as we could be, because because she was always her best self. Her, her trainer, uh, Brian uh, Johnson, mentioned that as well. That you always, she inspired him to be his best self as well. And he writes in his training book that she inspired his mom to be her best self, too, and, and she got into shape. And there's something about seeing uh, a human being perform at levels of focus, achievement, and uh, brilliance that uh, the rest of us can only aspire to that does lift us above ourselves. And then, as you say, that, that focus on the real-life effects on actual people was characteristic of the jurisprudence on the court 
And it was central to her success as an advocate. So, Kelsey, I want to ask you about her achievements as an advocate. I, was, I found it very moving, of course, just to hear in the tribute video her voice in the oral arguments in the six Supreme Court cases that she argued. Strong, confident, clear. Uh, there, there, there was one argument uh, you noted that was particularly distinctive. Tell us about that and her performance as an advocate. Yes. So before the justice was the justice, she was the foremost advocate for, for gender equality in the country. I think she briefed or argued almost every sex discrimination case that was before the court in the 1970s. Her first argument was in a case, Frontiero v. Richardson, uh, where Sharon Frontiero uh, had applied for military benefits for her husband, and she was denied because those benefits were reserved for uh, wives. They weren't. They weren't uh, permitted for husbands. Uh, and so the the justice uh, appeared in that case. I think she had twelve minutes of argument. Uh, and normally, when you're in the court, there's a, a lot of back and forth. The justices don't hesitate to jump in and interrupt you. It's called a hot bench, right? It's a lot of back and forth, which which may have been what the justice was expecting. Instead, what happened is she spoke for twelve minutes without a single question from the justices. Uh, and, and she said later, she wasn't sure whether they weren't asking her questions because they weren't listening or whether they were so wrapped with attention uh, that they uh, it didn't occur to them that they should interrupt her because they were so interested in what she was saying. I, I, as an advocate uh, who, who spends a lot of time at the podium, when I don't get any questions, it's pretty unnerving. Um, I, I, I'm much more comfortable in the back and forth. So I, I was in awe when I listened to that argument. Her voice just kept getting stronger and she kept going and, and, and had more to say. And ultimately, when the opinion came out, we saw they were listening. Uh, she won that case uh, overwhelmingly. Uh, and it was it was a huge, huge victory. Um, great contrast between how unnerving it must be for an advocate to, to have no questions. And, and that makes, um, friends, it's worth listening to the tapes of the oral arguments. They're, 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 there's the Ginsburg tapes as a podcast where you can hear them and you'll, you'll find them online. And the moment that Kelsey just mentioned is really striking, this long uh, passage of perfect sentences without a single question from the bench. Amanda, and yet she did certainly face um, open uh, sexism in many of her arguments. She chose, as we heard, to represent men in many cases because she thought that uh, their plight of being disadvantaged by laws that purportedly favored women would be more likely to appeal to the, to the male judges of her time. And she's described um, all, all sorts of uh, slights and, and comments that she got from the bench, but she said she never lost her cool and I asked her why, and she had one of those long pauses, and she said, because I wanted to win my case. So she, she of course, wouldn't get rattled by it. Um, what would you like to share about her achievement as an advocate and, and maybe describe how she really transformed the law of gender equality in a way that made her the most influential advocate for gender equality of our time? Well, I think in 2020, it's hard for us to remember what the legal landscape was in the early 1970s when she started litigating these cases. But as late as 1961, we have Supreme Court opinions coming down, and in, in that case, Hoyt versus Florida, saying that a woman's place is effectively in the home, that it's okay for the state to assume 
that women are the central participants in the home and family life. And therefore, it followed in that case that the court upheld a state law that exempted women at the outset from jury service. What Justice Ginsburg did through her litigation strategy was convince the Supreme Court that putting women, to borrow a phrase she likes that Justice Brennan used, putting women on a pedestal is actually putting them in a cage. Because for example, exempting women from jury service communicates that we don't value the civic participation of women. And that's really demeaning. And so what she did through a series of cases, she briefed for parties 10 different cases to the court and she won seven of those. One was moot, which means uh, it effectively became, uh, she effectively came to win. Uh, that's an incredible batting average. And over the course of those cases, incrementally, she convinced the court that gender stereotypes that inform these and other laws, and, and she, she went after quite a few, including laws, for example, that led to the immediate termination of Air Force officers if they became pregnant, laws that denied unemployment benefits to women who became pregnant. But as you say, Jeff, also a number of cases where she represented male plaintiffs, like the Weisenfeld case featured in the video. Putting all of that together, she was weaving a story for the justices that showed them gender stereotypes affect both men and women and hold both back from, from achieving their full human potential and enjoying the full range of opportunities. And so she was really brilliant in her strategy by very slowly and incrementally convincing through the different faces that were affected by discrimination in the form of her clients, showing the justices how this worked and how actually maybe counterintuitively to those male justices, uh, discrimination actually holds men back too. Beautifully expressed. And I loved uh, a word you called our attention to, the justice's notion that uh, laws that excluded women from jury participation, for example, didn't value their participation. They were not uh, uh, subject to um, the being valued as equal citizens. And she has that notion of equal citizenship participation, where everyone is equally valued. It, it almost connects the ideas of equality that she argued so powerfully for with those of dignity, which converged in the Obergefell decision uh, representing same-sex marriage and in other decisions that she joined and wrote on the Supreme Court. Um, we were beginning to get questions in the Q&A box, and I must ask uh, this one uh, uh, to you, Kelsey. My name is Elise. I am eight years old. Can you tell me if the justice ever gets nervous and does that affect her work? So I know that she has spoken about her nerves the first day that she argued the case I was talking about earlier. And as I said, when you listen to her, her the recording of her argument, she doesn't sound nervous at all. But what she has said is that she couldn't eat that morning. She was nauseous. She was terrified. Uh, about getting before the justices, and she just summoned her courage uh, I, I, uh, and, and did what she needed to do. So yes, I don't know if she still gets nervous in front of crowds. She's, around, she's in front of them so much that she might have uh, developed a tolerance for it, but she certainly did when she was, was, was first practicing law. That's a great insight uh, that she experienced the nervousness. 
But then, of course, she overcame it because, you know, and that incredible advice from her mom to overcome unproductive emotions like anger, jealousy and fear, uh, because they will distract you from your path. And I asked her in one of our conversations, uh, you know, it's that's the lesson of the great wisdom traditions of the, of the, of the Bible and, and of uh, the ancient uh, philosophers. Yes, she said, but it's very hard to achieve in practice. Yes, she says it is. I said, how did you, how, how do you actually do it? I wanted to know the secret. And she said, I realized that if I don't maintain my focus and overcome those emotions, I will lose precious time for productive work. And it's such an inspiring and difficult to achieve standard that we all face every day. Or I'll, I'll just speak for myself. When you, know, you find yourself, I find myself many times a day being dis- distracted or uh, s- surfing or, uh, or maybe getting impatient or something. And, and often I will ask myself, what would RBG do? And you realize, well, she'd get back to, to work. It's, a, it's, it's, it's very inspiring. Um, um, uh, Amanda, another, well, Amanda, let me ask you, going back to her advocacy, you've noted a really interesting connection between one of the cases she argued as an advocate and her, in some ways, best known opinion as a justice, the one we saw in the video, the U.S. versus Virginia decision, striking down uh, supposedly separate but equal single-sex uh, military institutions. So t- tell us about the connection between those cases. Yeah, so supposedly, I think, is the key word in your question there, supposedly equal, allegedly equal. Uh, the VMI decision, which she decided, or, or she wrote the opinion, in which she wrote the opinion, excuse me, in her third term on the court, was a hugely important decision that uh, uh, struck down or declared unconstitutional Virginia's attempt to exclude or Virginia's policy of excluding women from the Virginia Military Institute, which had a storied and very celebrated special legacy of churning out prominent graduates and creating opportunities for them. Virginia, when challenged upon the exclusion or about the exclusion of women from the university, created a separate new freestanding military university for women which did not have the same opportunities, did not have the same prestige, did not have the same anything really. And the Supreme Court over one dissent and an opinion by Justice Ginsburg held that those opportunities needed to be made available for the women who wished to pursue them. But this was not the first time that the justice had faced these issues. As Jeff said, uh, when she was a litigant, one of the cases that she briefed to the Supreme Court, she did not argue it. And this is a very important uh, or very interesting aspect of the story, was a case called Vorchheimer. It was a case in which they were challenging separate high schools for boys and girls in Philadelphia that were for so-called gifted students. But they were very different. The boys' school, the boys' high school had much more sophisticated math and science courses and better facilities, among other things. Justice Ginsburg wrote the opening brief in the appeal uh, for the side challenging the distinction, challenging the separate high schools that had lost below in the Third Circuit. But for some reason, local council decided that they could do better 
in drafting the reply brief and actually arguing the case. I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can say maybe that wasn't the best tactical decision in the case. In all events, the Supreme Court split evenly in that case, so it was extremely close. And the result is people who follow the Supreme Court know when the court is evenly divided, the lower court's decision in this case against the challenge is upheld. So that is one that was not a win in the category. And we can all wonder whether if she had argued it, it would have gone differently. In any event, she's told me that when VMI crossed her desk, her husband said, well, now you're just still litigating Vorchheimer, aren't you? <laughs> wow. Uh, an amazing case. And it's a, gr it's a very important example of how she transformed the law, because what wasn't obvious at the time of Vorchheimer, and it's striking that it came from Philadelphia, where the National Constitution Center is, became the law of the land in VMI. Uh, VMI has some memorable quotations. We have one of them in our new exhibit on the 19th Amendment at the National Constitution Center, um, which uh, calls out uh, quotations such as, sex classifications may not be used as they once were to create or perpetuate the legal, social, and economic inferiority of women. Um, and, and then Kelsey, uh, Tell us more about the, the legal significance of VMI. Uh, Justice Ginsburg didn't quite achieve her goal of uh, what's called strict scrutiny for gender discrimination, making it just as constitutionally suspicious as racial discrimination, but nearly so. She said you needed an exceedingly persuasive justification, uh, although that wasn't quite a compelling interest. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was nearly um, strict scrutiny. So, so tell us more about the significance of VMI. Well, so the... The significance of VMI, Amanda talked about the connection with, with some of the other cases she litigated. The, the great achievement uh, the, of, of the justices' work in the 1970s is summarized in the VMI opinion. Uh, she is citing Reed v. Reed and Califano v. Goldfarb and, and Weisenfeld uh, and, and the precedents that were set in the cases she argued before she was a justice. It's really an extraordinary thing to, to, you know, when she was arguing those cases, I doubt she had any idea that she was going to be a justice uh, 20 years later. And here she is citing these cases that she argued in one before the court. Um, but as you say, Jeff, in, in the 70s, when she was litigating this first round of sex discrimination cases, uh, she had to make a number of strategic decisions. What she was looking for and aspired to was uh, a, a recognition from the court that any sort of gender classification uh, would be suspect in itself, right? That under the Equal Protection Clause, whenever you start treating men and women differently, you would have to have a very good reason to be doing that in order for it to pass constitutional muster. And so in, in, in the cases she was litigating in the 70s, the court kind of danced around that. Sometimes she danced around it a little bit too. Um, and so when we get to VMI, we do see uh, entrenched in the law and in that opinion that there is a heightened level of scrutiny for uh, gender classifications. But as you say, Jeff, not what she was looking, I think would have done if, if she'd had the opportunity, which is strict scrutiny, that the highest level of scrutiny that applies to, to racial discrimination. And that's still with us in, in 2020. Uh, racial discrimination is treated differently than gender discrimination. Uh, thanks for helping our viewers understand that. And it's for that reason, of course, that Justice Ginsburg believes 
that uh, the ERA should be ratified. The Equal Rights Amendment would treat gender discrimination as skeptically as racial discrimination. Uh, Justice Ginsburg surprised some when she said that she thinks that uh, because it's not clear that the ERA was validly ratified when Virginia became the final state to ratify it just last year. But some states have rescinded their ratifications and the deadline in the amendment itself had expired in the 80s. She thought it would be safer to start again. Uh, Amanda, more, more thoughts about why the justice thinks the ERA is necessary? Well, before I answer that, Jeff, if I can say, when the VMI opinion included the passage saying that laws discriminating based on gender will only be upheld if there is an exceedingly persuasive justification for them. Many commentators jumped on that and said that Justice Ginsburg was trying to lift the standard and make it tougher. And she'd be the first to tell you that if you look at her opinion, she was quoting that phrase from the court's earlier Hogan decision. So it's not of her own creation. Uh, I think if she was here, she would make a point of noting that. On the Equal Rights Amendment, I can only share what she's told me, which is that if you open the constitutions of many other countries, you will find provisions in them that say clearly the genders are equal and there shall not be discrimination based on gender. And those documents, hearkening back to something I said earlier, reflect a society's appreciation for the equal worth of the genders and an appreciation specifically for the full participation of women in the life of that society in, in all of its fashions. And what she's told me is she would love to see words like that in our constitution that echo that same refrain. Thanks for emphasizing that it was a quotation from Hogan and for helping us understand uh, her um, views about the ERA. Um, several questions about music. D. Mann asks, how did the justice come to a love of opera? Did she learn the languages the opera singers use, such as Italian? And we also have a question, uh, why did she want to study law, considering her passion for music? For all that we, she and I talked about opera in the years in our public interviews, I never asked her, uh, demand uh, your question, but she shared the answer in a recent interview with David Rubenstein, which he published in his new book on leadership. And she told he he, he asked her that you know important question: Why did you come to love opera in the first place? She said it was a really meaningful and inspiring music education teacher when she was a young student who just kindled her love and encouraged the students to go to the opera in New York, and that's what started it going. And she had the pleasure of meeting him years later and thanking him for having kindled that love, reminding us what huge difference a single teacher can make. Um, as for why she wanted to study law, considering her passion for music, Kelsey, do, do you want to take that one? It was quite obvious from her incredibly moving uh, eighth grade uh, essay about the documents of freedom, including the Declaration of Independence and the Universal Charter for Human Rights, that she had a passion for the constitutional ideals early on. And forgive me, I've now started answering this, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep at it. I'll ask you another question. Um, um, D, uh, D uh, Mann and, and uh, the other questioner, um, it was teachers in college uh, who really kindled her love of civil liberties. In particular, here's who she studied with in college. Uh, 
she learned English from Vladimir Nabokov at Cornell. And it was he who taught her incredibly precise appreciation for word choice. And all of us who have worked with her know that her writing is extremely particular and every single word is thoughtfully and carefully chosen. And uh, she'll, she's the most fearsome copy editor in history and will just change commas and periods and individual adjectives to say exactly what she wants. And that was partly inspired by, by Nabokov, one of the great translators as well as writers of the 20th century. And then she had a great teacher of civil liberties who put her to work um, researching the McCarthy hearings. And at a time when people were being put in jail for exercising their Fifth Amendment rights and for their political associations, she, uh, through this research, became convinced of the importance of protecting constitutional rights. So because I couldn't resist a- answering that question, I will uh, ask another uh of you, uh, Kelsey, I'll ask uh, D. Bowman's question. What's the biggest lesson you learned from Justice Ginsburg? Uh, I, I think there are, there may be two pieces to this. Um, one of them is the justices' relentless commitment to telling the truth, to telling the full story, uh, regardless of whether anyone is listening. I imagine when she first started the 1970s, to litigate these cases. She didn't know whether it was going to resonate with the Supreme Court, but she was going to tell the stories of the pregnant school teachers, of the the widower who wanted to take care of his young son. Uh, And it it was important to her. She is at her heart, I think, a truth teller. And you see that in all of her decisions. Uh, And particularly in in recent years, she's become uh, quite well known for her dissents. And what her dissents often do is tell the other side of the story. The, the majority opinion will have a dominant narrative that's focused on the powerful party uh, in the litigation. And then she comes in in her dissent and says, that's not the whole story. Here's the story of the marginalized plaintiff, uh, the, the criminal defendant of the... Uh, and so... Uh, the, the inspiration for me in that is that when I see a, a half story, a, 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 a explanation of something that's uh, privileging the, the dominant narrative, uh, that it's incumbent on all of us to, to say that's not actually the whole truth uh, and to speak up, uh, uh, to tell our own truths, uh, and then also to speak up on, the, on behalf of marginalized groups in whatever context you're in. Um, the, the whole story should be told. And the, the second piece of that is that when she does it, she never, as you were saying earlier, Jeff, I have never heard her even slightly raise her voice or even sound perturbed. She is always completely in control of her motions and focused on the facts and being precise in what she's saying. Every sentence and every opinion she writes is, is backed up and, and there's there's nothing there that she's kind of pulling the truth in one way or the other. And so that, I think, reflects her commitment to ele- uh, to excellence. And so when you combine those two together, it, it explains, I think, quite naturally why she has become the phenomenon and the leader that she is right now. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, I think for all of us to, to aspire to be uh, a fraction of that. Yes, absolutely. So, so powerful. Um, uh, and Amanda, similar question to you. Uh, what was the biggest lesson you learned? And then I'll add Jacqueline's question. Any worldview that changed for you as a result of working for Justice Ginsburg? 
I, I'll come back to that new question. Um, I have little to add to what Kelsey said, but I, I will add a little. And uh, everything she said is fully consistent with my experience clerking for the justice. Beyond how Kelsey described uh, the justice in terms of being a truth teller, and I love that expression, I think that the way that I would explain much of the same thing is to say that the justice, as I mentioned earlier, when she approaches a case, even though we're talking about a high level legal concept coming from the Supreme Court, she approaches every case with an acute appreciation of how the law functions on the ground and impacts the everyday lived experiences of all Americans. And you see that play out in much the same way as Kelsey was describing when you read her dissent in Shelby County and she walks through, this is what it's like to be in the jurisdictions that were covered under the Voting Rights Act under that regime that the court has now struck down. We haven't made the progress that the majority believes we've made in these jurisdictions. That's why the Voting Rights Act still has so much work to do. And that's one of so many cases and examples I could use to make the point of how she really understands that the court's decisions have a dramatic impact on the lives of everyday Americans. And I think much of that is the product of the life that she's led and her background, her own family's history. She's the daughter and granddaughter of immigrants. Uh, her parents did not go to college, so we would call that a first-generation professional. She uh, represented people of all walks as, a, as an advocate, and she carries with her all of those experiences into how she goes about approaching her work as a justice. And that, along with just her profound commitment to being a public servant and to fighting every day to, uh, for the rule of law and to uphold the Constitution is really inspiring. And so the biggest lesson that I got from the experience was to try and do the same thing with my own career. And I had the best role model possible to show me the way. In terms of how much it changed my worldview, this marries with another lesson that I learned, which is details matter and being meticulous as a lawyer is enormously important. Being principled as a lawyer is enormously important. And thinking about how the infrastructure of the law and procedure, for example, for example, really matters and procedural integrity in our system really matters if we want people to buy into the end product of our justice system. And that is something that is very much at the heart of her jurisprudence. She was a procedure professor as an academic, and I am now a procedure professor in very large measure inspired by having worked for her and studied under her effectively. What, what great life lessons you summed up from the importance of the role models of her own immigrant parents, which as you noted in our last discussion, her, her mom was a bookkeeper, and, I, I, and that, that brought to mind the incredible story of her mother, who was also such a reader that she once was walking down the street reading a book and broke her nose because she wasn't looking where she was going. And that love for reading from an immigrant uh, from Eastern Europe uh, 
inspired young Ruth to the fact that she has become a role model for you as a civil procedure teacher and reminded you of the importance of profound attention to detail. Um, on the question of role models, Kelsey, uh, one of our friends in the audience asks, are there predecessors of her on the court that she particularly admired or felt an affinity for? Did she have judicial role models? That's a great question. It, it's always struck me as so significant that the justices' chambers uh, were previously third good marshals, um, but I, I actually don't know that I've ever spoken to her about that or, or the, the connection there. Um, certainly, you have, Amanda. <laughs> uh, um, so, uh, and uh, in terms of you know predecessors, she was only the second woman on the the court. She has certainly spoken very, very highly of her friend and colleague, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who was the, the first woman. And I know um, that she's spoken about Justice O'Connor kind of guiding her uh, in her early years on the court. And then she's very famously uh, was very close with Justice Scalia, despite them being diametrically opposed in, in, with respect to their views on the Constitution and, and jurisprudence. Um, uh, and I, I, you know, there, I think she was, she was drawn to his character, his friendship. I think they both uh, came from a place where they believed that good, smart people could disagree about things. Um, so I don't know that those are necessarily, but they were both justices who were on the court before she was, um, and, and then she was able to work with them once she, when she was elevated. Those are great uh, examples to, to call out. Uh, Justice Marshall, Justice O'Connor, and uh, those other predecessors who meant so much to her. I'll share, and then I'll ask you, Amanda, to tell us more about Justice Marshall and, and your insights about her hero. She, she, I asked her who she admired, and she said, of course, Justice, uh, Chief Justice Marshall. He made the Supreme Court what it was. A wonderful example of a great judicial hero to have. And then, and this was years ago in the 90s, she said that she loved uh, Justice John Marshall Harlan II because he always gave clear and transparent reasons for his opinions. And he always told you why he was deciding as he did. And then she cited with great precision a Harlan decision that had been very useful to her as an advocate, uh, which held that the remedy for an equal protection violation is either striking the whole law down or extending its benefits to the previously excluded class. And she always appreciated that decision and uh, cited it on the Supreme Court as well. And then fi finally, I'll share, because um, it was a great question. Um, we, I had the amazing experience of touring an Alexander Hamilton uh, exhibit with her at the Glimmerglass Opera. The Cooperstown Museum is the Hamilton Museum, and they've got the original pistols, and they have all this great Hamilton memorabilia. And I asked her, what she thought of Hamilton. She said, I, you know, I've taken my grandkids to the show. And of course I love the show. Uh, but she said, my favorite founder is Madison. So she was very keen on choosing the constitutionalist, not the monarchical nationalist as her, as her hero there. Um, Amanda, your, any insights you have about the justice's thoughts about uh, Justice Marshall or any other judicial heroes she might have had? Well, I, I would echo that she was very, uh, uh, very appreciative of Justice Harlan's jurisprudence on the remedy question. And indeed in the first brief she filed in the first gender discrimination case, she litigated Moritz uh, versus, United, versus United States, the tax case that's the center or at the center of the movie on the basis of sex. 
she relied on that to argue that the benefit that had been denied her never married male client should be extended to him and all persons like him rather than done away with. Um, but what I would add is that in her confirmation proceedings, she talked about learned hand and the spirit of liberty. And the reason I you know, flagged this and said, I, I want to talk about this is because it's Constitution Day. And I think uh, there's no accident we're here together on Constitution, on Constitution Day. And reading a little bit about what she said in that testimony and how she, she uh, channels learned hand uh, is really immensely timely today. So she testified in her confirmation hearings that the justices do not guard constitutional rights alone. Courts share that profound responsibility with Congress, the president, the states, and the people. And so I think that is something that is very much at the heart of her jurisprudence and, um, and is so important to how she thinks about our constitution. If you look at the long arc of her work as an advocate and her opinions as a justice, you see an overarching theme, which is uh, if you go back to the preamble of the Constitution, it talks about how we're doing this to build a more perfect union. And she writes time and again that we all have to invest in that building of the more perfect union. And I think that's a really important takeaway from her whole career. Thank you so much, Amanda, for emphasizing the influence of learned hand. Friends, just to reiterate the, the importance of Amanda's observation, learned hand was uh, famous as a champion of judicial restraint, of, of deference. He, he rarely struck down laws, and in that sense was seen by many as a, a judicial conservative, although, although perhaps a political liberal. And it's really striking, as Amanda says, that Justice Ginsburg chose him, first of all, because Learned Hand turned her down for a clerkship because he didn't, he didn't want a woman. He did allow her to drive with him and her judge, Judge Palmieri, as they were all driving home from the courthouse. And what she liked about Judge Hand is that he loved Gilbert and Sullivan. So he would sing Gilbert and Sullivan and she would really appreciate that and sing along. And uh, as, as an advocate, the fact that she cites Hand, who said, as she quotes, uh, both the beautiful words that Amanda quoted and also the spirit of liberty is the spirit that's not too sure that it's right. The spirit of humility that leads judges to conclude that most social change comes from the bottom up, from the people, as Amanda said, rather than from the top down from courts, is not what we think of when we think of a, a fiery liberal justice. She did not believe, as Amanda said, that most social change come from courts. She thought courts should codify changes that had bubbled up from movements like the women's rights movement and the civil rights movement. They could nudge or they could put, apply small breaks, but that ultimately was up, as Amanda and Judge Hamm said, to we the people. Thank, thanks for uh, calling that out um, in every way. Uh, Kelsey, do you want to tell the story of uh, a case decided your term that was meaningful and will kind of give our friends a sense of, of how the justice decided cases? Yeah, so I think this, this I'll, I'll mention Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, which was probably the biggest case, uh, the term I clerked. And it, it's so consistent with all of the themes that we are talking about. Um, the question in that case was whether uh, the owners of a uh, privately held for corporate co corporation could uh, uh, 
exempt the corporation from federal rules requiring that employers include contraceptive coverage in their insurance plans based on their moral belief that uh, that contraception was wrong. Uh, and, and the majority uh, opinion uh, said that the owners of the company could transfer their religious beliefs to the corporation and that indeed their, their religious beliefs uh, entitled them to an exemption under a federal law called the uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Uh, and so this is another example of the, you know, the, the dominant story in the majority opinion is of the owners of this company and their, their beliefs. And uh, uh, what Justice Ginsburg does in her dissent is uh, explain the other side, the legions of women who work for these very large companies uh, and as a result of this decision will not have access to contraceptive coverage. Um, I think, you know, it, it's a very powerful opinion um, along the lines of what Amanda was saying. It, it's a question of statutory interpretation. And so um, she doesn't at the end say, you know, this is for Congress to fix. I don't think she's quite that there in the Lily Ledbetter decision, which everyone I think is familiar with. She says this, the ball is in Congress's court. And I, I don't remember language than that, like that in Hobby Lobby, but ultimately what she does in that dissent is provide a roadmap for Congress to amend the law to address the problems that she's identifying with the majority's opinion. Um, and so that's not her work to do. That roadmap is for Congress. And ultimately, it's for us. If her dissents resonate with you, then uh, you need to work to elect legislators uh, who will then amend the laws uh, in the way that the justice has identified as, as necessary. Um, so I, I think, you know, we, we've talked about the dissenter's hope before, which uh, she describes as, as the hope she has whenever she writes one of these dissents, uh, that eventually it will become the law. Um, very few of the dissents she's writes that the, the change in law will come from the court. Ultimately, it's going to come from Congress and from the people. Such an important reminder of her deep sense of role as you just said, change won't necessarily come from the courts, but from Congress and the people. And as you also observed, although the Hobby Lobby dissent, of course, has not yet been embraced by Congress, her dissenting opinion in the Lily Ledbetter case was embraced by Congress and President Obama signed it into law on his first day in office. That was a dissent that she read from the bench, essentially inviting Congress to overturn the court's statutory decision if it disagreed with it. And friends, just to remind ourselves, um, Congress cannot overturn a decision that the court decides on constitutional terms because the Constitution has to uh, prevail over any inconsistent statute. But if the court interprets a statute in a way that Congress disagrees with, then Congress can pass another statute clarifying or overturning the court's decision, and that's what it did. In the Lilly Ledbetter case, and that shows the justice's sense of role. Amanda, you had a decision uh, in your term involving civil procedure. You've already told us how attention to the details of civil procedure inspired you to become a civil procedure professor. Civil procedure was extremely important to Justice Ginsburg, who, as a law professor, mastered Swedish civil procedure and in 1965 wrote the textbook on Swedish civil procedure, an astonishing example of her unbelievable uh, ability to master a subject and, and become uh, definitive in it. So tell us about the civil procedure decision and, and can, you know, it's, it's a pretty technical area. Give us a sense of excitement and, and why did she care about it and why did she make you care about it? 
Well, we've talked before about her dissent in a case called McIntyre. That was after my time. Um, that's a very important procedure case. And uh, the year, but the year that I clerked, she decided a case that involved procedure as well as larger federal courts jurisprudential questions. A case called Friend of the Earth, Friends of the Earth versus Laidlaw. And it's a really important decision because it shows, um, it holds, excuse me, that Congress can use special tools to invite citizen plaintiffs in court to help the federal government enforce our federal law. In that case, the Clean Water Act and laws that Congress has passed to protect the environment. In that case, uh, Friends of the Earth an environmental group wanted to sue to stop a polluter upstream from polluting a river. And they did so under the citizen suit provision in the Clean Water Act. And the argument was made at every level of court, including to the Supreme Court, that the citizens should not be, the association, excuse me, should not be able to have what we call standing in court. That is to say the power to come into court to try and ensure that the Clean Water Act was being enforced in this particular case. And then on top of that, in the middle of the litigation, perhaps sensing that it would lose, the polluting company stopped polluting, which is great. But then they said, because of that, the case is what we call moot. There's no reason for us to keep litigating. The plaintiffs have gotten what they want. And in an important decision written for the court by Justice Ginsburg, she said, no. First of all, the citizen suit provision is good law. The plaintiffs have alleged that they have suffered aesthetic, uh, recreational, and economic loss as a result of the polluting, and they've alleged it directly. Congress has created a scheme whereby, because of the citizen suit provision, when a, a suit is victorious, the polluter has to pay penalties. It necessarily follows that a party will be encouraged, if you will, under threat of penalty to comply with the law, which would remedy the harm the citizens have alleged. So they have standing in a sense that they can come into court. We can do something about it. We can enforce the penalty provisions and enforce the law more generally, and that will make them better. That will make the river clean for them. And so she says, uh, in the opinion for the court, they have standing. And this case is not moot because it's important in cases like this, and this transcends the environmental context, of course, that once someone is sued, if they stop the offensive conduct, we can't just throw the suit out if there's a chance that they could repeat it, as there was in this case. So it's an important case about, as you say, Jeff, procedure, but also about the role of courts in uh, making sure that they're not that parties don't play fast and loose with their jurisdiction. And it's an important decision about the ability of Congress to employ everyday citizens to help enforce federal law, including, importantly in that case, our environmental laws. Thank you so much for that and for exciting us about that case in the same way that uh, you were excited at the time. Well, it is time for our closing thoughts in this really meaningful discussion after an unforgettable tribute. And uh, I'd like you to share um, with our friends what qualities in Justice Ginsburg you think 
have contributed to the fact that she is the most influential advocate for gender equality of our time and one of the most influential justices of all time. And I, and I do want to ask you to reflect as well on the inspiring language of the Liberty Medal, which is given to men and women of courage and conviction who have advanced the cause of liberty around the world. Justice Ginsburg is a woman of great courage, and I'd like you to tell our friends about that. So, Kelsey, first to you. Yeah, it's as you were asking the question, the, the first quality, you know, there are lots of people in the world who have one singular quality that's their strength, and, and the justice is unique in her, her generation uh, for the, the combination of qualities she has. And the first one that comes to mind, mind is her brilliance. I mean, there are very few people who have her intellect, her ability to hold so much information in her head, to, to think uh, through arguments and to present them in a compelling way uh, it is extraordinary in itself. And then the, the second word that came to mind uh, was her bravery uh, and her persistence uh, in, in her commitment to you know, her, her, her initial passion and, and cause that has defined her career is, is certainly uh, gender equality. Uh, but she has trans, you see that same commitment as, as you said, Jeff, to full, citizen, full citizenship stature for all people, all people uh, it, coming out in her, her cases about affirmative action and voting rights. Um, uh, over and over again, she has been able to identify marginalized groups uh, and say, you should be part of this, uh, you are part of this country, you, you should have full citizenship stature. And just her relentless, so, that, so you combine her brilliance and her relentless commitment to that sort of equity and inclusion, uh, and then uh, her, her courage to just always to, to speak to, to, to whether she was at the podium or later writing these dissents. And you have someone who it's not surprising at all that she's become um, the, the leader and, and, and superstar that she is. So I, I think for all of us who have been, as Amanda said, she's been our idol for, for a long time um, to see her, I think what I would describe as her rightful place <laughs> and having the millions of fans uh, she does. It, it is so well-deserved uh, uh, and I'm grateful to be here to, to talk about her with all of you. Thank you so much for those wonderful thoughts. Um, Amanda, last, last words to you. What, what qualities would you identify as those that have contributed to making Justice Ginsburg one of the most influential advocates and justices of our time. It's going to be hard to top what Kelsey just said. I thought I'd, I'd tell a quick story maybe to summarize how I feel about her. The year that I clerked for the justice was the year that she had her first bout with cancer, excuse me. And uh, it, it happened, the, the cancer was diagnosed very shortly before the term started. And everyone assumed, and there was a lot of press to this effect, that she would not be on the bench to hear oral, oral arguments on the first day. She just had surgery, she was in treatment. And I remember I went in early that day and I was the only one there when the phone rang, so I answered it and it was the justice calling from the car saying, Amanda, please call the chief and tell him I'm gonna be there. And that's Justice Ginsburg in a nutshell. And she's one of the most resilient and dedicated people I've ever met. She was not going to allow anything to keep her from being on the bench that day, as we've seen in the years since. 
That resilience has carried her through so much more. She is immensely dedicated to her job, to serving our constitution and all Americans. She is brilliant, as Kelsey said. She is beyond inspiring for those of us who know her, but so many others because of her resilience and her dedication. And as Kelsey said, I think the defining feature of Justice Ginsburg and why she is so worthy of this recognition is that she has made it her life work, her life's work, excuse me, to build that more perfect union and to make sure also borrowing from the preamble in the constitution that the concept of we the people includes everyone. And that is something on today of all days in this day and age of all times that we should celebrate and it is such a, an honor and a privilege to play just a small role in this event, honoring her as well it should. Thank you so much, Amanda, Tyler, Kelsey Corcoran, for so movingly and meaningfully encapsulating the qualities that have made Justice Ginsburg so richly deserving of an award for being a person of courage and conviction who's inspired all of us and millions of people around the world to be their best selves, to pursue the blessings of liberty and equality. Thanks to all of you friends who've joined us tonight in celebrating the Justices Award. And I'll end by saying thank you, Justice Ginsburg, for all you've done for the Constitution, for liberty and equality, and the more perfect union of the United States of America. Thank you all. Good night. This episode was engineered by the National Constitution Center's AV team and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber and Lana Ulrich. The Liberty Medal Ceremony included a video tribute featuring performances by internationally renowned opera singers and tributes from special friends of Justice Ginsburg. You can watch it at constitutioncenter.org slash liberty dash metal, and we'll link it in the show notes for this episode. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.